Welcome back to the Poor Proles Almanac. This is Andy once again. In today's episode, we're joined by Zach Elfers. Now, Zach doesn't really fit into any particular category, and I guess that's probably how he likes it. A forager, botanist, wild tender, and researcher, his engagement with the landscape and agricultural systems around him reflect more of a time forgotten than the way we try to pigeonhole ourselves as specialists today. Today we talk about how his unique blend of history and ecology has allowed him to take advantage of living in one of the most important regions of the country in terms of recent tree crop advancement. This was a really fun conversation to get into the weeds about the nerdy stuff we tend to talk about on this show especially from a historical perspective, and I think you'll really enjoy it too. So take a listen, let us know what you think. Zach, thanks so much for coming on. I'm pretty excited to talk to you because we've chatted a bunch online and uh, now we get to talk face to face. That's exciting for me because you're like one of the only people that I can post anything about some historical agricultural figure and you're like, oh, let me tell you about this about them. And uh, that's pretty cool. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, you know how you ended up getting into the work that you do and uh, what we're going to talk about. Sure. It was a sort of a meandering journey. I've got a horticultural background going on about 10 or 12 years now. And I, I didn't study this in school. I'm, I'm actually admittedly a college dropout. But um, I was fortunate to meet some really good mentors in my life at a fairly young age, like my early 20s. And so I started working for a friend in his native plant and permaculture nursery. And he was into all kinds of stuff like, you know, food forests and pawpaw trees and, you know, all the all the typical perennial permaculture plants. But he his background before that was that he had built up a big native plant nursery. So I, I sort of, um, yeah, at the time I was getting into foraging and organic farming and gardening and I had heard the, the dreaded P word before, <laughs> permaculture. And so I, <laughs> I sort of set out down down that path, or, or in, I, I was interested rather. And, you know, so when, when I met this this guy, it really came together and I just, I found I had a knack for it. And yeah, the, the rest is history. I've, I've since met other mentors and had other experiences. And I started my own nursery uh, about five or six years ago, not really with any idea of, having a business in mind. I just was growing so many plants and trees that it felt like the right thing to do. Yeah. So I, I guess my first love was the spring ephemerals. I really got into the, just like the trilliums and the bluebells and the, uh, the, the spring beauty and uh, the water leaf and just all of, all of our um, native plants in the Eastern temperate forests here. And I was focused on, edible and medicinal things in particular. I've always been fascinated by the interface between the human world and the so-called wild or natural world. Now, of course, we're always a part of that, so the, the boundaries are very uh, permeable. But anyway, it was, uh, it was some years later, I guess about 2016, I was introduced to the John Hershey Orchard through some mutual friends, which included Max Pascal. Dale Hendricks and then Buzz Ferber came in. I don't think he was there at the first meeting there. He came in a little bit later in the picture. But my friend Max, I guess, had read the article in Permaculture Activist about the John Hershey Orchard and somebody, who I, I can't remember his name, 
I basically uncovered some research and you know, went to the Quaker meeting house there and found that there were still some trees there. So we met up at the Quaker meeting house in 2016. And sure enough, there were these beautiful persimmons and bur oaks and honey locusts and hybrid oaks and all kinds of stuff. But as we continued to explore, there was this map of the Hershey Orchard from John J. Russell Smith's tree crops book. And we're looking at the map and we're like, this, this doesn't match up. We're not at the right spot. And so uh, using like satellite imagery, we were able to see where the roads in the map corresponded with a, a development that's four miles north of Downingtown, Pennsylvania. And that's how we found John Hershey's farm. And so that really opened my eyes to the world of tree crops, just being able to experience these incredible trees that were uh, pushing 90 to 100 years old, some of them, um, with no care, no maintenance, just basically being left, uh, thankfully, by the developers. Spared the ass. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, I around here, any development means clear-cutting. So the fact that anything survived is just like wonderful to have experienced that i think for you must have been amazing just to be like i i'm witnessing a piece of history that has been in front of us this whole time and nobody knew yeah it's it's pretty amazing um you know i i do want to acknowledge that i'm really fortunate in my position to have been able to have these experiences because i'm from the same place you know i'm, I'm from like the southeastern pennsylvania area and all this stuff is sort of localized around there so, yeah, it was just sort of being in the right place at the right time to meet these trees and get get integrated into this into this history. Yeah, I think that history has been really buried. And like, you know, J. Russell Smith is a name I think a lot of people in the, the whatever you want to call it, Permi, uh, alternative agriculture, whatever space, tree crop space, everyone knows. But there are a number of figures like John Hershey who've been around and had done really amazing work. And... Hopefully, there's still more to be discovered and explored in these spaces. Just people need to to know about it and to find that local history that exists because the, the idea of tree crops has been a part of early 20th century in North America or America. It existed across the entire country and we've just, it was dismissed after World War II basically, but, but the remnants of it still exist and there's so much work for people to do once they realize what's around them. Oh, absolutely. There's old tree crops orchards all over the eastern United States. I, I'm, I'm sure they're definitely out west to like Luther Burbank and uh, Gelatly and all that stuff. But, you know, I'm, I'm more familiar with the eastern things. But yeah, I mean, these old nut trees are still on the landscape, many of them. And so the work of doing fruit and nut exploration is really fun. That's something I've been involved with. Now that I've gotten everyone's appetites whetted for tree crops and like this really, you know, I, I think for our generation, and I'm going to step back a little bit, I think that we grew up in a time where everything is so hyper-specialized that the idea of being able to discover something new feels really out of reach, right? Like the world has been explored. Like if you want to explore space, like you don't have the technology or resources. If you want to get into science, anything that like somebody in the backyard could do feels like it's been basically done except for this kind of space so the idea that like you can do some research and maybe discover something that no one else has figured out that is important for our history and our future 
is really exciting. So I hope people do kind of explore a little bit more in that direction. Now, in terms of your work, I want to talk a little bit about how, where you are in terms of like the John Hershey forest and your interest in tree crops, how that's kind of bled together to into some of the work that you're doing now. Sure. Well, earlier on, I, I had mentioned the, the P word, the permaculture word, which I, I don't really use anymore for a number of reasons that we don't have to go into here. But I'm, I'm just a big believer and proponent in native plants and our native bioregional ecosystems. I'm not exclusionary about it. I think there's always room for uh, exotics with, uh, within reason, but my focus is, uh, is on the native stuff. So like I said, my first love was the spring ephemerals, and a lot of those are geophytic root foods. Well, they can be foods. Um, not all of them are edible, but with our eastern temperate forests, um, because we, we lose our leaf coverage in the winter, there's a narrow time in early spring where the leaves aren't on the trees yet, but the temperatures are warm enough for plant life. And so there's all these often very showy and colorful, beautiful spring wildflowers that emerge in the forest floor and just put on such a show for a few weeks before the leaves come out. And then they go dormant. And because they go dormant, they have to have a storage organ underground, which is what they call a geophyte, which just basically means eating the earth in Latin or whatever. And so what is a storage organ? It's a bulb, it's a tuber, it's a corm. But speaking generally, it's a starchy storage organ that can be, uh, I mean, this is what potatoes are, this is what sweet potatoes are, this is what root crops are in general. And so there's a lot of native root crops that are out there and they integrate well into forest ecosystems. So when I learned the tree crops piece, it really just brought everything together. I just realized, wow, there's a whole total system here. You know, you've got just spring ephemerals in the in the woodland understory, and then you've got some summer wildflowers, and then of course uh, that then you've got all the the tree crops, the higher canopy trees like the chestnut and the oak, the persimmon, the hickory. We've got some sub canopy trees. We put pawpaw in that can in that category. You've got a lot of shrub and uh, thicket types like uh, wild plum and hazelnut, things like that. Long story short, to summarize what my goal is with the work that I do is um, when I'm working with an ecosystem, I want eventually to come out in the spring and see nothing but wildflowers. I want to come out in the fall and see nothing but nuts and fruits. Yeah. That's sort of my, my working goal here. So I have a little bit of land here down on the Susquehanna River in um, southern New York County, Pennsylvania. There's about eight acres of woodland that was logged five or six years ago. And so there's all these canopy gaps and really gnarly looking trees that were left behind. And then uh, there's a little bit of open area too, about an acre. Doing a lot of things here, trying to integrate the human subsistence gardening realm, picture your vegetable garden for home use, with uh, ecological restoration and just bringing back uh, native wildflower diversity, native tree crops, just all, all that good stuff, just bringing as much diversity and beauty to the land as possible. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's what I do. That's what I try to play around with as much as possible while also having to, to work and, you know, do all the things I need to do to keep everything afloat. Yeah. You are also involved with the, of course, I didn't think of writing down the name in front of me, the tree crop. The Keystone Tree Crops Cooperative? Yes. 
And you guys have been involved. Uh, you guys recently bought a nut press, and you guys have been experimenting with how to utilize some of these tree crops. So that's something I think is really interesting. I, I'd really be interested in your thoughts on like what does it mean to try to to create a product like that, especially given its historical context and the context of where you guys are right now. Sure. Yeah. Well, we've got some really great people and um, some some good good opportunities we're working with here and. With the, with the cooperative. We're basically based out of Pennsylvania, but we have some members in Maryland and we have some people who are associated in like New Jersey and New York and things like that. So it, it's basically for this broadly mid-Atlantic region. And um, first I'll go into the, the name, the, the Keystone Tree Crops Cooperative, it's sort of a double entendre. So Pennsylvania is the Keystone state. But nut trees and tree crops act as keystone species in our ecosystems. And so that keystone word is sort of hitting on, on both aspects. And so we made this cooperative in the hopes of creating a keystone for the uh, tree crops economy. What we're really trying to offer is a right livelihood working with these tree crops and sort of a cottage industry revitalization. And so that can look like a number of different things. Some things we have pretty dialed in and some things we're still experimenting with. But we're, we're working with uh, chestnuts, both raw chestnuts, seed chestnuts, as well as chestnut flour. We're working with hickory oil, mostly from the bitternut hickory or the, the yellow bud hickory, which is a when you expel the oil, it results in a uh, very delicious, high-quality, high-smoke-point oil that's got a similar nutritional profile to olive oil. So it's got like oleic and linoleic acid in it and whatnot. We're also working with hazelnuts, and um, if we have a good acorn mast here, we'll probably do a lot with them. So the idea behind the cooperative is sort of, well, we're, we're, we're trying to do many things at once, which is why a cooperative is so necessary, I think. Tree crops in particular really encourage us to rethink ways to run businesses. It doesn't really work with a traditional capitalist model, which we wouldn't want to recreate anyway. But there's so many wild nut trees out there already. There's acorns and black walnuts and hickories and even Chinese chestnuts all over the place. And it's just largely an underutilized, underappreciated, unacknowledged resource. So partnering landowners and public spaces with uh, gatherers, with processors, marketers and distributors, all of that is is what we're doing. Yeah, that's awesome. I've always had this idea and I'll probably never do it, but I really want to is to do the same model, but um, for maple syrup, tapping trees around here, uh, you know, getting a handful of folks together, buying some equipment and basically leasing out trees in people's front yards and the red and sugar maples are pretty ubiquitous here, so it seems like there's plenty of resources and people would pay a premium or always pay enough that we could have decent margins on like a, a tree crop product product that's native and local. You guys are doing it on a different end because here at least there's not a other than acorns, there's not a whole lot of tree crops available because of the repeated clear cutting that's happened here in the last four hundred years. It's really cool to see that you guys are trying to leverage what's already in front of you as opposed to 
and there's nothing wrong with it. The idea of like building a, a, a silver pasture or a food forest in uh, something that might be like someone's backyard that was clear cut a dozen times. Uh, like that that's important and necessary work. But like the reality is that chances are in your lifetime, you'll never see the fruit of that labor. Or at least you'll see some of it, but not to the capacity of what's available to you right now, where you've got these trees that are 100, 100 plus years old that can produce, you know, a, a very large quantity of calories, basically, very low effort. Now, in terms of the actual work in progress, so to speak, you know, you're, you're harvesting these, you know, nuts and then processing them. There's a long history of doing this, right? And Somewhere along the way, we lost how to do a lot of this stuff efficiently. So I'm really interested, given the technology that we have available, the resources, like primarily I'm thinking like how we can leverage things like 3D printing to make doing these types of things much more effective. And um, I don't want to necessarily say like scalable, but more how do we do it in a way that you can actually produce these products in a way that people can afford them? Yeah, great question. Uh, that is our goal is to make the products not only affordable, but also the, the workers um, fairly compensated. I mean, there's a lot of picking jobs, like there's the, a lot of apple orchards out in Adams County, Pennsylvania, and they, they often rely on a lot of migrant labor. The, the folks that come and pick the orchards work really, really hard. And, you know, I, I'm not sure what they're paid, but I bet that it's very underpaid for the service that they are offering. And so we're not trying to end up with recreating that model. We really want to find ways to establish, uh, like I said, locally oriented tree crops, cottage industries. And you mentioned the maple syrup production and there, there's a lot of overlap. Like, um, you know, if you've got a good kitchen space set up for processing things, you can process maple syrup, you can process um, nut products and nut oils and and all of that. So one of the things we're looking at too um, is is diversification, which is often a response to uh, issues with scalability. The scalability issue is is a is definitely a, a real issue with nut trees because nut trees in particular don't really hit their stride until they're like a hundred years old. The production on a hundred year old chestnut is just like so unfathomably great so much unfathomably more great than like a 20-year-old chestnut, let's say. So a lot of what we're doing is working with the, the wild tree crop resources that are already out here for that reason, that, that it's, it's really the low-hanging fruit. At the same time, we're, we're encouraging others to plant, plant nut trees, to start orchards. We're doing a lot of agroforestry projects, and it's all, it's all really exciting. But, you know, scalability really depends on one, having a market, two, having a supply. And right now we sort of have a supply in terms of the, the wild resources, but we don't have a market yet. And so we're, we're focused on starting small and building up the interest and really producing quality and building the market in interest, which I'm not worried about in the least because anybody who tastes anything from, from these, these trees is basically immediately a fan but to get everything affordable um yeah this is a this is a question to uh to answer down the road as we get our uh, standard operating procedures you know our best practices kind of nailed down yeah and i think like there there's two sides to this that i think are really important that i think generally on the left we do a very poor job of the first is risk taking 
which means like trying something and it might not work. You might, and you might butt heads with somebody about something, but you have to try it to figure it out and learn from those mistakes. And we tend to just, especially on the business side, we tend to be very risk averse or just not go into it at all. I mean, how many cooperatives have you heard about that never did anything? Like, <laughs> I can name a lot of folks that had good intentions but could never get anything off the ground. And the second one is that the idea of like building good business practices is somehow like against our ethic or something like that. And that like creating efficient processes are somehow like anti our beliefs, even though it it's better for everyone. It makes more efficient work for people. It means they're going to get paid better. It means you can produce things at a lower cost. These are not bad things for anyone. So addressing those and you know, kind of confronting them head on is really important. And I think that's really great that you guys are trying to do that. Now, you've mentioned that the, the quality is really good of the products that you're making. I'm assuming you're primarily talking about the oil. With the oil, I know this is something that there's been a lot of research on non-academic research like Sam Thayer has been working with like acorns and acorn oil. Hickory oil. He, he was the one who uh, taught us. Yeah, yeah, he's he's um he's definitely a resource. I'm still waiting for his new book to come out. I think I pre-ordered <laughs> it like 6 months ago. <laughs> so he, you know, there's people doing really cool work and again going back to what we I mentioned like 15 minutes ago, this idea that like this is one of those unique areas where people can still kind of do the citizen science thing and discover new things and learn new practices. And they're not necessarily new. Like his, historically speaking, humans probably, you know, we're we're basically going back to the Stone Age in terms of how to work with these crops and relearning what people had known for thousands of years. And there's going to be bumps in the road, but that doesn't mean between the technologies and the resources we have today, just the internet, the fact that I'm talking to you, you know, a thousand miles away or whatever is 800 miles away about uh, tree crops and we can share information about our experiences and how that can help drive what we're doing is an invaluable resource that didn't exist before. And we can do really cool things just be, and we can accelerate that process of relearning by sharing and learning from one another in a way that was never possible in the past. When you press the oil, what are you guys doing with the the remain uh, the like nut meal? The press cake, yeah. Um, well, we're playing yeah. around with it. Um, it seems really good for using as a smoking substrate. So, like, if you're gonna smoke meat or uh, whatever with like hickory wood chips, you can use the hickory press cake from from that, and that that seems to be working pretty well. Really, I, th I think a really good purpose for it would be some kind of like bioplastic. If you could somehow like reheat it and then press it into like a form, because the 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 oil pressing process is quite efficient, but there is always residual oil in there, and basically you're you've got a, a mix of a, a lot of proteins and kind of fibrous structures that um, don't make it into the oil, and then you have a little bit of oil all around that. So. If you reheated it and pressed it into a form, and uh, it basically that that material would polymerize, as I understand it, which is I'm, I'm not a chemist, but that's basically how you make plastic or or bioplastic. So you could make uh, building materials out of it. You could make objects out of it. It could also possibly be used as an animal feed because there, like I said, there's a lot of protein and fiber in there. But there's also a lot of tannic acid in the case of the, the bitternut hickory. If you're pressing other material, that's not an issue. With the bitternut hickory, the press cake has, it, it's just very, very bitter, but it could be diluted. For example, you could mix like a half percentage 
of hickory press cake into some other animal feed. And it would be, it would be quite good actually for like a uh, livestock, like uh, cattle, for example, like having some tannic acid in their diet is, is important. It kind of tonifies the, the GI tissues. And I and just, my understanding is it's a, it's a good, like fortifying nutrient. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, of it as like a somewhat of an analog for like any other meal that we press, you know, the cake, like soy or whatever, because of the high protein content with the added benefit. While a lot of people might think the tannic acid is bad, like you said, it does offer some really great benefits that could help supplement a lot of diets. I know it also has some really good effects on things like, you know, parasite you know, load and things like that. So, you know, if, if you spend a lot of time with livestock, you know, you, you can tell when they are having um, a parasite issue because of their interest in tannic foods. It's usually a pretty good giveaway that something's up that they might need some help. So I think like trying to integrate it into a more diverse diet, the, the ramifications of that, if you can scale up something that can produce oil at the percentage of like corn, while also providing a byproduct that is maybe not equally valuable, but not significantly below while also having all the ecosystem services of, you know, a, a tree crop. Uh, that seems like a win-win-win. The, the problem is dialing it in. And that's the part we need to figure out. On that note, something we, uh, a technological innovation we'd like to make at some point, uh, probably years down the road, is the acquisition of a condenser mill. So I mentioned with the bitternut hickory because of the tannic acid content, the press cake is really bitter. But if you're pressing a different material, like let's say hazelnut, you can press hazelnut oil, and then the press cake that's coming out of the machine is going to be, you know, a lot of protein, a lot of minerals, and some bits of shell. So then the problem is, um, how do you separate the shell from the good stuff? So if you run that then through a condenser mill, through some kind of technological wizardry, it's able to it's able to separate those materials, and then you have a fine powder made just from the shells and you have fine powder made just from the meal. And then basically you have two products. You have hazelnut oil and then you have hazelnut flour. And it would be ideal to remove the oil from the flour anyway. That's a really cool tool though. Like I, I didn't know that was possible to be completely honest. You know, that's been one of the biggest challenges is like a lot of us that are in this kind of space, we're all trying to DIY all the same thing at the same time. And like, in some ways, it's pretty cool because you have this like community of people that are all going through the same experience of like, you know, I've got these trees, they produce X, Y, Z. I'm trying to figure out a way to do this efficiently. Some people have figured some things out that work pretty good. Other people have found other things. And you can kind of scale that to what you're interested in doing. But the end goal really should be, how do we make this scalable to the point where it can be affordable to people? Like the goal isn't that everyone has to go homestead or forage their diet. Like there's nothing wrong with those things inherently, but the goal is to synergize our diet and our capacity for scale and infrastructure so that people can live better quality lives with better quality food, with a better quality ecosystem so that we can do the things we want to do and not force people to have to go you know, forage nuts and then press their own nuts, and, you know, all these different things. Like, and this is something that's repeated across like all, all these cottage industries. And I, I'm using the word industry wrong here, like, but cottage, uh, like permaculturally homesteady type of space, right? Where everyone's all kind of doing the same thing. Like, why does every beekeeper need 
the same equipment that they use once a year instead of just sharing and utilizing the the capacity for scale and reducing the the need for us to all buy expensive equipment right why why are we not centralizing these things because that's what we've done historically yeah exactly i mean in my view i don't think it's possible unless we work I mean, running running the homestead myself, I can tell you, like it's not possible. Like you, you know, you can't you can't do everything alone. I mean, we can we can do a lot of things by ourselves if we want, and um, but those things that we can do are limited. And um, if we try to remove the limits, then we become <laughs> the limit. So um, yeah, and it, it's just a yeah. recipe for burnout. And with the with, with pre crops, for example, there's just so many um, diverse aspects of the of the, the value chain, the economy, whatever you want to call it, you know, you've got um, people who need to tend the trees and take care of the orchards, and then you have people that need to pick the nuts, and people who need to know how to store and process the nuts, and people who know how to market and distribute the nuts and package the nuts. And, um, it's like none of us can wear all these hats at once. Um, so, yeah, as far as um, yeah, sustainability goes, it really needs to be cultural. If we, if we, if it's, a, it's a cultural problem. We need to start to value net freeze again, culture, and move towards a multi cultural stewardship. Yeah. And like, you know, I think, for example, one thing I don't think people realize is like, in the, a lot of people are like into canning now, but like historically, canning was like a very communal thing that people did there was places you would go and do all of your canning and like you think about it like the amount of equipment that has to go into it you know it's not so bad today because of our capacity for scale and complexity in terms of like making cheap affordable stuff but historically it was done usually communally because of the fact that you needed certain resources available to do that weren't easily accessible you know when i think about like trying to how do we how do we balance this like self-determination with like communal support with the fact that for a lot of people that are probably listening to this podcast like their community doesn't reflect what they wish it did so how do you plug into that and that that's a really complicated and nuanced conversation but it is one that i think is really worth having especially as we start to think about what does it mean to create ecosystems that are around our communities because you can't do that alone you can't create the ecosystem that can support a community without the entire community's input you know we can do what we can on the landscapes we have access to but in the scheme of things that's just a very small drop in what it means to have a healthy ecosystem around us and and this is something that we see repeatedly you know you can do whatever you want to your landscape make it as healthy as you want but if the people upstream don't then it doesn't really you're you're still going to have to live with those consequences upstream that means if you want to do this type of work you need to find a way to find some common ground, not necessarily with 100% of the people around you, but at least like a good amount of them. And that can be a lot harder than the actual creating the tree crop food system itself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we live in such a complex and multifaceted world. Um, and because of all the connections, um, yeah, like, like the, these issues are cultural issues. So with our cooperative, when we're working with people, um, we're really trying to build bridges with people from all walks of life. And sometimes, um, you know, we're speaking to farmers, for example, and um, getting um, farmers to plant out 
um, to crop some more farms. And actually, believe it or not, the Amish communities are really um, starting to take the tree crops idea forward. Um, and so let me let me back up a little bit and, and talk about the economics of the cooperative. We are a for-profit cooperative, but internally we're sort of um, we have some internal socialist models to ensure equitable distribution of profits among the members. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. Okay, so let me back up a little bit and just talk about the economics. So we're running the cooperative as a for-profit cooperative, but internally we're running it with some sort of socialist models so that we can redistribute profits among the various branches of the of the member categories to accommodate for any inequities of basically wealth distribution. Like, for example, in traditional capitalist economics, the marketers and distributors tend to have the highest profit margins, even though <laughs> the, the real embodied labor that's happening is much further down the supply chain. It's like the gatherers and the processors and and things like that who are really creating the value. So we want to be able to redistribute amongst ourselves. But we chose the, the for-profit cooperative for a reason because there's there's a language there. If tree crops can be a revenue generator, if they can be demonstrated to be a profitable business, if we can come to farmers and say, hey, if you plant your back 40 with tree crops, here are the profits that you can expect. Here's the revenue that you can expect. You, you start to open doors with people, people who may not have prioritized nut trees before. I mean, you're always going to have the hippies and the conservationists and the native plant enthusiasts and the foragers. They're, they're always going to be on board with this because they just inherently see the value in these beings and they want to see more of them on the landscape. But to really build those broad connections, um, you have to learn to, to play the, play the game a little bit and, you know, it's a, it's a fine line because, like I said, we're not trying to create or recreate, you know, a, a capitalist business. We're really focused on just stimulating local um, cottage industry kind of stuff that's decentralized, equitable, and our solution to scalability, instead of getting bigger and bigger and bigger, is decentralization. So, for example, we have a nut depot hub in one city or area. And if we need more processing power, we just create another hub. Yeah. You know, I would say there's a couple of things going on there. First, there is some scalability, but it's contextualized, right? Where it's contextualized based on the community and its capacity for consuming the product. It's not, you're not outsizing the the scalability so that you have to enter new markets or anything like that, you know, stepping on 
theoretically, if there was another similar business going in another town, you're not stepping on their proverbial toes. Like that, that's obviously important because scalability is like the fundamental piece of like ecological sustainability is how do you scale within a context where you can maximize efficiency and ideally, you know, making things affordable while paying people well without overscaling. And that's, that's the really tough line to walk. The other part that I think is really fundamental and important to the fact that you're a for-profit cooperative is that like we can we can show and utilize the fact that marketplace isn't necessarily inherently capitalist. You know, I I do think a lot of people kind of fall into this uh, rabbit hole of if it's not the exact thing I want in the world, it's not better. And that's not the case. Like we can, if that's what the community demands, then like you can provide a service that makes the world exponentially better, both for the ecosystem and for the people that inhabit it from a number of different perspectives, from higher quality food, higher uh, standard of living, uh, higher, you know, ecosystem benefits, health benefits, all these different things that go into creating a more equitable system. And um, it can be very radicalizing to kind of cleave apart capitalism from the marketplace in terms of getting people to be more open to different ideas and concepts. Yeah, for sure. And you know that these uh, what we're trying to create isn't isn't unprecedented. Like if you go to some parts of old world Europe, like France or Italy, for example, they have, or I should say, they had a lot of localized cottage industries based around tree crops, like uh, chestnuts in Corsica and like uh, Carpathian walnut oil in uh, in France. My, my friend Elodie, she works with a lot of tree crops too, and she's in the in the Hudson Valley of New York, but she's French. And when she goes back to France, she's like studying these systems that are still in place there. And it's, it's really cool. Yeah. And that's, you know, we, we do get really bogged down in the, the American centric understanding of like, we're recreating these things when, like you said, they, they do exist in some capacity or at least in recent living memory. So like my grandfather, before he moved to the United States, he uh, had a couple acres of grape vineyards and olive orchards, and all of that was processed through cooperatives. That was just how it was done there, and that's how it's been done since the early 20th century. And I'm not sure if it's still that way. Actually, I think it is um, from talking to family. But the idea of cooperative models to be able to scale processing to make things more profitable is just like... It's a common sense thing that's existed basically since civilization, you know, whether it was grain milling and, uh, you know, any other type of processing for winter crops that, you know, the basis of our diets, wherever you happen to be from, a lot of that was done on a communal scale. Today, we just call that cooperative, you know, and, you know, back it behind mm -hmm. like, you know, this money transitory piece. But like, historically, that's just how humans have survived. Yeah, Absolutely. And of course, the, the Native Native Americans, the First Nations of our continent, were very intimately working with all of all of the trees that I've mentioned thus far. You know, William Bartram, when he was traveling through the Southeast, he talked about how almost uh, I, I think what I recall is like every family had just bushels of hickory nuts stored away, and it was just part of their their uh, subsistence. And he documented how. Shellbark hickory and shagbark hickory was planted out basically in forest garden orchards. And um, we know that the native folks even made um, a product much like hickory oil. They did, they did it a different way. They didn't have an industrial oil press, but, but there's, there's 
many ways to skin the cat, so they say. Yeah. And, you know, I, I also think there's a point that's really important to be made on the same subject of like, if the resources today were available back then, they would use them. And I, I think we, we do this like nostalgic, like back to how things were without acknowledging like the really great things that are available for us. Like this thing that you can just push, you know, the waste from pressing oil through and it separates it into products that can be used versus I can't even think about the amount of labor hours that would have to go into it otherwise. Uh, like that's a wildly efficient and helpful tool that we can, you know, we, we can use to, to make things better. And like, that's not a bad thing. Like we don't have to, like, I might be kind of a Luddite, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean like we shun any type of technology that can make our lives better. Yeah. Same here. I'm, I'm a Luddite by, uh, <laughs> by sympathy, but I'm pretty uh, pragmatist by nature. So yeah, I mean, we've got all these amazing tools and, um, we can't move backwards. We can only move forwards, but we need to, we definitely need to keep the past always in our mirror or always in front of us, depending on how you look at it. You know, we, we need to, we need to learn from the past as, as much as possible. I would say it's imperative. It's an issue of survival, survival, but, but obviously time continues to unfold. Change continues to happen. And that's the adaptability piece is learning how to find balance among all the changes. Yeah. And I think that's especially important, this idea of like, if we all agreed we wanted to go back to the past, we can't because of climate change. Like what worked on a landscape 600 years ago isn't necessarily going to be applicable, you know, a hundred years from now. And, you know, when we're talking about tree crops, like you said, the trees we're planting today won't really be at full production for a hundred years. That's three, four generations from now. Uh, you know, the tree that you plant today will only be really felt by your great grandkids or your friends' great grandkids or your nieces or nephews' great grandkids, right? So there's this idea of contextualizing the work we're doing and a lot of, and you know, it's important that you guys are doing this great work trying to figure out how do we efficiently utilize this resource that's on the landscape, but also understanding the context of we don't necessarily need to figure it all out. We just need to make sure those resources are available for people in the future and give them that hundred years to figure it out. And maybe we're just one small step in terms of, hey, this is a viable crop. It tastes good. We have some very fundamental understandings of how we can use it and we can plant the trees so you guys can figure it out later. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there's something really powerful in understanding that context. Yeah. The other thing I love about working with tree crops is it's encouraging us it's, and it's showing us a path out of a lot of the private property nonsense that we see. I mean, if you really want to work with tree crops in a serious way, you really need land trusts or at least some kind of um, long-term agroecology easement because you need, you need it's a long-term crop, you know, like far farmland you can lease for, you know, whatever, 100 or 200 bucks a, a year per acre on a annual on an annual renewal basis but with tree crops i mean you're looking at at least 100 years and if not indefinite and uh it just doesn't it doesn't work with our private property system yeah and it, that's that's another reason why i think the uh the tree crops economy like with the tree crops cooperative it can be such a powerful uh leverage point for really um bringing about that cultural change because with the, they call them like uh, NTFPs, the non-timber forest products. If you can start to put real world financial figures to the non-timber forest products, such as 
maple syrup, such as hickory nuts, such as acorns, such as chestnuts, such as hazelnuts, persimmons, all of that. And people start to see the value of these not only as delicious boutique foods or, you know, novelty foods, but as truly economically viable crops that they can be growing in the landscape. The next logical step is, well, how do we ensure the sustainability of this? So, for example, let's say you're a, you're a family farmer or whatever, and you're planting tree crops. You don't know what your kids are going to do, and you hope that they'll take on the work that you started, but we know how that goes. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't often go very well. You know, you just can't expect that. And so you might want to create some assurances that the work that you've invested in today is going to be, is going to be continued to, that stewardship is going to continue onward into the future, which may be your family and may not be your family. But the important part is that there's, there's some kind of legal protection or structure like an easement or a trust to ensure that. Yeah. This idea of talking about crops, you know, from trees that they really only start producing at a hundred years. I think that concept itself kind of moves the Overton window a bit about land ownership and land stewardship and our our relationship with that landscape. Because, you know, when we talk about what this landscape looked like 600 years ago, I think people don't fully wrap their heads around how how young our forests, our mature forests today are, historically speaking. We talk about these old growth forests today as if they're old, and they're, many of them are not. Uh, most of them are not even. Most old growth forests today really are, historically speaking, for those trees, oftentimes those trees are like middle-aged. They're not old. And when we start talking about especially these nut crops that we're talking about, those are usually the ones that are the longest lived. When we start to understand the landscape in that kind of capacity, I think it forces us to rethink about the futility of this idea of, I own this landscape for, let's just say, and this is very generous, 50 years Historically speaking, that's nothing. And the idea that I can do all this work and plant these very important and valuable trees for myself, my family, my neighbors, the landscape itself. And the best case scenario, or the best case scenario that I live for 50 years on this land that I bought at 20 and lived to 70 or, you know, 30, 80, that suddenly those trees that haven't even hit like a good production yet can be cut down because the person who happened to buy it next didn't want to deal with black walnuts in their backyard or, you know, whatever it might be. It speaks to the fundamental, like, futility of the way we're living with private property as a way that can actually restore these landscapes. What we've lost is incomprehensible. I mean, if, if, you, if we could time travel back even 200 years, I mean, 300 years, 400 years, sure. But if even 200 years, we, we would be floored. I mean, first of all, there were white oak trees growing like far oh you cut out um but there you are diameters at breast height of like 10 12 feet and this was from the southern appalachians the central appalachians all the way up to lake ontario like there were trees documented like this in um, southern ontario canada in like the carolinian forest regions i mean that that's incomprehensible and those were all logged out as soon as we had the logging technology big enough to take down a tree that size. But just beyond this, the impressiveness of size and, and height and girth, the native folks were truly had worked with the native hickory, walnut, persimmon forest to the point where I would consider them domesticated. It's just that 
So, for example, the, there was a old president of the Northern Nut Growers Association. He was the first president, Robert T. Morris. And he talks in one of those early uh, NGA archives about being raised as a boy in Louisiana in the 1860s. And he said at that time, there were black walnut trees that had shells so thin you could crack them with your hands. And he said that they were legendary trees, but nobody knew how to propagate them at that time through, through grafting or whatever. And because of private property and, you know, things get cut down and whatnot, they, they're just, they're gone. They're gone from the landscape. And if you look, it, like if you get into the lore behind like the Northern Nut Growers Association and you understand where our cultivars come from, for example, like Granger Shagbar Kickery comes from Granger County, Tennessee. Almost all of these are, in my opinion, old Native American selections, for lack of a better word. They're part of the, the Native cultural landscape that was that was left on the land here. Now, I'm not suggesting that like Native folks were line breeding or anything like that. It's just when you live in a multi-generational culture of stewardship with your bioregional ecosystem for generation after generation after generation. For example, you might cut down the hickory trees that don't have nuts that are very accessible. They might have thick-shelled nuts. They might be small. They might not taste great. great. You cut those trees down and you make bows out of them. You know, And then the, the trees that are the best are obviously getting let, left on the landscape. Those nuts are being planted in like old um, Swidden fields, like sort of like the Mesoamerican Milpa system. That was all over the eastern United States, too, where advanced agroforestry, for lack of a better word, was being practiced by Native folks. And so they were certainly choosing the best genetics to plant, and they were certainly calling some of the, the weakest um, or you know le- least desirable genetics. And so at the time of early colonization, the, oh man, just understanding what was on the landscape and what was lost is is heartbreaking like i I live a half hour from lancaster city and before lancaster was known as lancaster the first european settlers when they arrived to what's now the downtown square what they found were a grove of hickory trees a spring and a wigwam and so that place became known as hickory town town with the e at the end the old timey and then it later became became lancaster and then you know the rest is history. And apparently they cut down a lot of those hickory trees to build the roads. But even in like the early NNGA days, the Northern Nut Growers Association, some of the better selections were coming out of Lancaster County, just because it was such a fertile area with such a rich indigenous history. So are, have you heard of like the, the founder effect? Like they talk about it in evolutionary genetics with like, for example, like Dar- Darwin's finches, for example, you get this population of finches and they go and they colonize a new island and there's a certain subset of that population that is best adapted to the island just because of natural variability and so that subset tends to become the founder population so then all the all the birds that are growing up around this new island resemble the subset of the original population which over time can lead to pretty big differences and how the populations look to the point where you can immediately distinguish them just by looking at them. The same thing happened with our native tree crops. So two, three, 400 years ago, most, maybe not most, that could be generous, but many of the nut trees on our landscape were the results of intentional selection over 
many, many generations. When you cut them down and they regenerate from basically un, unmanaged practices, just from seeds in the seed bank, things that squirrels and jays drop, and those grow up, that's a subset of genetics that's basically for fast growth and um, the nut qualities are not a consideration. So in that process of cutting down the forests, we inadvertently created a founder effect, basically selecting for nut trees that are just uh, a lot less accessible. Yeah. So, but, but those genetics are still there. They're latent. And so the work of continuing the, the breeding and selection that Native Folk started is of utmost importance. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely just unbelievable when you start, if you start going through the archives of old um, nurseries that have from the, especially the teens, the twenties, the thirties in particular of the selections that were available from native plums to, you know, tree nuts to nut crops for trees, you know, the, the selections, they're unbelievable. You know, now it's like, if you're looking for, you know, an American plum, there might be, I don't know, 15, 20 varieties that you can find. Historically, there were hundreds and like that kind of diversity is just like shocking that we've just let it go. But those, many of those trees are still out there. We just need to find them. Yeah, that's that's what I've been a lot. Of, uh, in, that's what I've been invested in a lot, especially with the hickories. I've really taken it upon myself to try to collect all the best of the best cultivars that I can. So, I have a mentor down in Kentucky, and I had one in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, Parker Coble, who passed. And um, you know, I, I hang out with other old nut growers, and you know, some of these guys are well, they're they're mostly guys, unfortunately, but a lot of them are in their seventies, eighties, or even nineties. And they just have been doing this quietly for 40 or 50 years just because they thought it was interesting. But there's there's a lot of really good genetics that have been preserved through organizations like the Nut Growers Associations and the uh, NAFEX, North American Fruit Explorers and, and whatnot. And so I've taken an approach of trying to continue to graft and propagate the good varieties while also growing out as many seedlings as possible because we're really going to need both we're going into the new the new normal, whatever that is, climatically. Yeah. Before we started recording, we were just talking about how this was like the weirdest winter we've ever experienced. Uh, and I, I have a, a sneaking suspicion this is going to be the new normal. And uh, that means we need to we need to learn to adjust very, very quickly. So I guess well, so actually I want to say one more thing. So you'd mentioned like there's a lot of these older folks that have been working in in the space kind of doing their thing without a podcast or you know any like platform to like make people aware of what they're doing other than if they're in like Nafex or whatever it might be. Which if you're interested, I think membership for Nafex is what uh, 20 20 bucks, 30 bucks, something like that. So it's definitely worth getting a becoming a member, supporting their work and getting plugged into all the things that they're doing. But it's really important, and this is something you're doing, is trying to like keep those stories alive, keep that knowledge alive, keep those memories alive of not just what the landscape looked like, but also the pro the iterative process that took place to be where we are today and to keep an understanding of what the future can look like based on the work that people have done. So, you know, I definitely appreciate you trying to keep those stories alive by just listening and hopefully you're writing some of them down because I think they'll be uh, they'll be really important in the future. So for folks that are uh, interested in what you guys are doing, what you're doing, uh, where can they find your work? Sure. 
We have the cooperative has a website. It's uh, keystonetreecrops.com. So you can check us out there and we have a email list and we are currently in the process of figuring out how to onboard new members in an efficient way. So stay tuned. Cool. As far as uh, what I'm doing goes, um, I, I'm on Instagram and you can also go to my nursery website, uh, futureforestplants.com. I try to keep it update, updated, but um, yeah, you can always reach out to me personally if you need to. I have an email address, which maybe you put in the show notes or something. And uh, what's your Instagram handle? It's uh, Susk Woodlum. So that's S-U-S-Q, which is short for Susquehanna and then underscore Woodlum. I'm like a hoodlum, but in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Zach, this has been uh, super interesting. I'm definitely going to have to have you back on to talk more about trees. Yeah, thanks for having me. There's a, there's a, so much stuff to geek out on and even the history of uh, like the TVA and all of all of the things that were happening before and around World War II are just so fascinating. Yeah, and we're going to be talking extensively about that this upcoming winter. So quick plug, if you want to read some of it, what the episodes will be kind of sprung out of. It, a lot of it's on Substack and uh, you can also get it on Patreon. So uh, go check that out if you haven't.